Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Let's get started. We'll, we always want to open up God's word with prayer, so let's start with prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray that you would absolutely teach us everything and let your anointing rest over this place. Let us abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And God, we thank you that it is by your word that we build our faith, Lord, from Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that God, it is sharper than a two-edged sword dividing us under the soul and the spirit from Hebrews 4, and that God, by it, everything of the world can be cut out of our lives. And that, Lord, we can walk by the spirit and walk according to your will and your commandments in your words. So teach us everything this morning, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're on the, the final chapter here in Hebrews 13, and it's the book of Hebrews. What an amazing book. It's just been, it's been an awesome, awesome study going through all the way through Hebrews verse by verse, and there's so much for us to glean from it. And chapter 13 is kind of a, kind of a, a chapter of the Lord's closing thoughts on, okay, what do you do with all of this? How should we live? What are our closing remarks? What are, what are his thoughts on everything? And if you remember, the entire book of Hebrews is built around these five different warnings. The danger of drifting in chapter 2, the danger of hardening the heart in chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13, the danger of failing to mature, chapter 5, the danger of willful sin in chapter 10, and then finally, the danger of refusing in chapter 12. And God, God has a plan, and he put these dangers in here so that we would be aware that after you're saved, you've got to cling to Jesus. And remember, each warning builds upon the other, ultimately culminating with apostasy. And an apostate does not have to be someone that doesn't believe in Christ. To apostatize simply means to turn away from. So you can be a non-believer that's an apostate that turns from God. You can also be a believer that apostatizes and turns from God. Both of those outcomes yield different results, but they're both the same action. One being saved forever under the blood of Jesus. When they turn from God, they lose stature, rewards, a place in heaven, a, a place not in terms of not having access, but a place in terms of your benefits in heaven, right? We've talked a lot about that through this, this study. The other one, refusing God that's not saved, obviously Jesus has a place prepared where people end up that want nothing to do with him. And when you do a, a deep study on hell in the Bible, it's interesting, it was not made for man. It was made for Satan and the fallen angels. It was never, God never intended for man to be there. Uh, but man in our rebellion has made it a way to, that they have to go there because they can't, they don't appropriate the blood of Jesus. 
But in any case, these warnings, they build, remember they build one upon the other, one through five, and they, it's a progression as you, as you continue through, it's a progression. And I'd like to show this slide again on what the Lord spoke to me about when we covered the fifth warning in chapter 12. It was, as I was looking at this, I was thinking, once you go from the danger of drifting to refusing, do you then start over again and go backwards, back down that scale, that after you refuse God, you commit more willful sin, you fail to mature even further, your heart gets even harder, and you drift even further away. And Acts 17.11 applies. Everybody has to check everything against Scripture. Um, Don't take anything I say just because I'm up here talking. Go back to God's Word and test it to make sure. But what he asked me was, or what the, the statement that I heard in my spirit was that God just said, it moves like a serpent. And so when you go from drifting to refusing, back down the scale to drifting again and back up to refusing, and each time you go up and down that scale, it's growing and getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So it's not something to take lightly. We have a responsibility. One of my favorite Uh, messages from the Lord of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shall not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. If you're going to take on the name of the king, you do not want to take it in vain. You want to make sure you do something with it. It has nothing to do with your vocabulary. Of those ten things that God wants us to abide by in the Ten Commandments, uh, your speech is not one of them, if you use a cuss word or not. It's taking the name as an ambassador of the king and then doing nothing with it. Don't take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Now, he does, not con- he does not accept cussing. Don't misunderstand. It's just that commandment doesn't have anything to do with it. It's, it's being an ambassador is what it's all about. Okay, so as we open the final chapter in Hebrews, remember this entire book was written to Christians. There's nowhere in the book that talks about how to get saved. It's always about what do you do with it after you are saved. And so it's for us to press on in our faith The book is an admonition from God himself for us to cling and press onward and not to let our grip start to fall away from Christ. You know, he has a call on your life. Uh, He has a call on, he had a call on my life in 2020 to, uh, to be one of many people that stepped out in faith to start this church uh, under the guise of Jesus. But he has a call on your life too. And that call will often be tied to and always is tied to the character he created you with. So, for example, Abraham, he was a family man. If you haven't noticed, Abraham was a family man. Thus, his call was to be the father of many nations. And you see him live out this commitment to family and going to war for his nephew, Lot. He put his life at risk to go save his nephew. He was a family man. Abraham loved his family which is why it it pained him so much to not have children. Look at Moses. Moses was a leader raised up to stand against injustice and wickedness of a tyrannical pharaoh. He was a tyrant. He was a dictator. And Moses hated injustice, and he hated wickedness, and he hated unrighteousness. And so God raised him up in that time to deliver his people, God's people, to deliver them out from the hand of a tyrant because Moses could stand in front of that court and he had no issue taking on the occultic, wicked people in that court. So you see these, these different attributes of people that God raises up and, and what their call is in their life will often be linked to 
What are their character traits? And the same is for you and I today. Uh, you may have a character trait of being a, a, ma- a great exhorter and being someone that has a lot of exhortation and is really good at coming around people and putting your arm around them and pouring into them. God has a call for you in that. Uh, you may be a great teacher. You may be, there's all kinds of different calls. And so just be aware that God created you on purpose. But it's easy to start to drift away when you do not know your call. That's, that's the point I want all of you to get on this slide. If you don't know your call, and you see this a lot in the world that we live in today, people will try to fill that void with other things. And they'll try to, they'll try to look everywhere else except God to fill this massive void in their lives. And so they'll try to fill it with things of the world. They'll try to force their way into some ministry and it's difficult for them. And you can see how much they struggle just to maintain it because it's not naturally what they were gifted at to go do. And so the key is that the call also will start very small in your life. You know, can God trust you just to do something simple, to read your Bible every day? Can he trust you to be a person of prayer every day? Can he trust you to foster your family and your kids well and to parent them well every day? And that call starts out very small. And when he trusts you with those things, slowly he will trust you with more and more and more as you grow. And that's, that's the pattern. So to start off today in Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. And I love how the Lord just opens up this chapter with, let brotherly love continue. The Greek word here for brotherly love is Philadelphia. And we all know Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Uh, you go there, you get greeted uh, very kindly by everyone when you walk around the streets. And they have great cheesesteaks, and it's fantastic. It's a city of brotherly love. Randy and I lived there a few blocks from the Liberty Bell for a few years, and it was, um, it was special. It was great. <laughs> I, I, it was before kids, and so we didn't have children at the time, uh, praise God, but we, we, we lived down there. The history there is incredible, though. You would turn the corner, and every time you turn the corner, there'd be some new building that some, some great founder of the nation was a part of, and really neat, really cool city. If you've never been to visit, though, I do recommend it from a history standpoint. It's really neat. Uh, just, just maybe wear earplugs or something when you're walking around. So the word only appears six times in five verses in the Greek New Testament. And here are the other four times it shows up. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectionated one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. See, you and I as in Christ, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we should be treating one another. What did Jesus say? How will they know us? They'll know us by our fruit and our love for one another, right? So when somebody does something wrong or is out of line, it's, you don't rise up in this hatred and want to attack someone, right? You come along, you seek to understand, you try to come beside them and pull them up, encourage them, exhort them, put your arm around them, pray for them. One of my, one of my uh, wife's favorite questions to ask when anyone has a problem with someone else is, how are you praying for them? Because so often, we have these, these thorns and these offenses we pick up and you just carry it around and you don't ever stop to go, wait a minute, I should be praying for that person. And so think about that. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you for ye yourselves are taught of God 
to love one another. It's pretty straightforward. We are to love one another. It's that simple. First Peter 1.22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. That's that same word, Philadelphia, love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Second Peter 1.7 is the last place. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. So you can see God's commandment for sure is for us to be in brotherly love with one another in one accord under the spirit. You know, we serve one God. Why are we so divided? In Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches for which Jesus has no rebuke for only two of them. Remember that. Those seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 are written in chronological order on purpose and they profile the entire history of the church age from Acts 2 all the way until the rapture. And so the order of which they are written, each one will, will kind of survey about three to 500 years of church history, roughly. I've got a chart on that we did in Revelation. But when you look at it, it's amazing because if they were written in any other order, that wouldn't be true. But the way Jesus wrote them, they profile all of church history in order. But remember, the only two churches he has nothing bad to say about is Philadelphia and the persecuted church, Pergamon. Um, one of them happens to be the church of Philadelphia, and it's in Revelation 3, 7 through 13. So starting in verse 7 here, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now that whole study on the key of David had to do with access. If you don't remember that, go back and check out Revelation 3 and dive deep into that. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou hast little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. Not denying his name. That's the same key for us today. In the world we live in, the world is going to pressure us more and more and more to deny his name. Uh, they're already doing it at schools. Your children are pressured to do it daily, probably, if they're in a public school, even in private school, frankly. Uh, you don't really know a lot of the teachers. But in private school, it's amazing. I saw a stat somewhere. There are almost as many atheists that teach in private schools as in public schools. So the key for us, as if you're in here and you're a parent with a kid in school, it's not whether they go to public or private or homeschool. The key is, are you praying over them? And are you praying a hedge around them? Because your children, if they're in Christ, when they walk in, they have the authority in that room. They have an authority over those children that are their classmates. And prayer's the key. Okay, set before thee an open door. No man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie, Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now, that's an incredible promise from God. So in the New Testament, Philadelphia is the love which Christians cherish for each other as the brethren. And so the Lord here in Hebrews 13, the way he opens is, let that continue. Let that love continue all the way back from the church in Philadelphia let that love that they had, let it continue for one another. And here we are almost about 1950 years 
since Revelation was written. And the Lord is saying, keep doing that, what the church of Philadelphia was doing. Okay, in verse 2 here, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I often think of this verse anytime you're, you run into a stranger that has a need. Uh, if you're in an airport and you're sitting next to someone on a plane or, or whatever it is, um, I'm pretty sure I've sat next to one angel on a plane once because he asked me a lot of weird questions. And when I answered out of the Bible, uh, the conversation went a whole different <laughs> direction. The guy just, he was, uh, gave me kind of a little bit of a weird feeling. Okay, entertaining angels unawares doesn't always mean that it's a good angel. Okay, just keep that in mind. A third of them rebelled with, with Satan. So, and we know that from Revelation 12 and 13, a third of them rebelled with Satan. And the fallen angels, uh, they manifest in and out of our reality just as much as the good angels. And so you just have to be aware. So remember, though, that the angels look to us to learn more about God and how he is indwelling us by his Holy Spirit. From 1 Peter 1.12, Unto whom it was revealed that unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels never saw a relationship that you and I have with God. They've never seen it until Acts 2, that a piece of the living God himself would come down and permanently indwell believers that give their life to Christ. They had no idea what was happening. And they, they are curious. They want to know, what is this about? Why is God that breathed us into existence indwelling these humans that are made a little lower than us as the angels? And a little lower is not necessarily in stature. It has to do with time. We're a little lower for a season because we know from the New Testament in our resurrected bodies you and I, if you earn that reward, will judge angels. Uh, you have an angel assigned to you if you're in Christ. And that's a, there's a hint of that in Matthew. Uh, Lucifer was probably uh, Jesus's personal angel, which may have hurt what, been one of the reasons why his rebellion hurt Jesus so badly. Uh, from Ezekiel 28, he was the anointed cherub that covered God's throne. He was the guardian of the throne room of the universe, and he rebelled against Jesus all the same. So two great examples of people entertaining angels are Abraham and Lot. If you remember from Genesis 18 and 19, remember Abraham serves a non, he, he meets the Lord in these two angels and he tells Sarai, go and prepare this meal and get, a, get a, a lamb, a kid, and serve it with this milk. Well, you weren't, there's two things you weren't supposed to do as a Jew. You were not supposed to serve meat and dairy and you weren't supposed to serve a kid that was seeded in his mother's milk. And so he's serving a non-kosher meal to these two angels and the Lord. One of them is, is God himself, it's Jesus. But these two angels and Jesus. Now, you can kind of get, uh, get some Jewish friends wrapped around the axle on that when you point that out to them, that Abraham served a, a non-kosher meal to the Lord himself before he rained fire and brimstone down over Sodom and Gomorrah. So what do you think about that? You know, and, but the law wasn't instituted quite yet. Exodus hadn't happened. But it's just amazing that Abraham was the first Jew. And here he is serving a meal that uh, uh, later on in the Torah is forbidden. 
It's amazing. That's in Exodus 23, 19 is where that reference is at. But there's also something about these two angels that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah wanted. Remember, they, the Lord and the two angels are there, and the Lord says, I will come down and see what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. The, their sin has become so grievous, it has reached up to heaven, and I have to move. I've got to come down and see what is happening. Well, remember, the two angels then leave Abraham and the Lord, and they go down into Sodom. Because there's a principle here. Remember what they tell Lot? We have to take you out before this judgment happens. It's a foreshadowing of the rapture. Because before God's judgment can unfold, you and I have to be removed. That's the key. God's judgment cannot take place as long as there is someone righteous in that city. And I mean his judgment, not not discipline, not correction over a city, not correcting maybe the leaders of a city. I mean his wrath and judgment that this is no longer going to stand. I'm wiping you off the map kind of judgment. Okay, and that's the angels had to come down. Remember, they want Lot and his family. Guys, you've got to get out. We are taking you because God is about to level this place. And Sodom obviously has never been rebuilt. Uh, they They found what they think are ruins of it around the Dead Sea. Um, the Sea of Galilee, I should say, but all that salt. Remember, Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt when she looked back. So she was taken out before the judgment, but then her walk stalled right there because she was not to look back. And that's what Jesus means when he says, anyone that puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Your walk will stall the second that happens. Okay, in verse three here, Remember them that are in bonds, a bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Uh, one more comment on Sodom and Gomorrah I forgot to mention. Those angels, remember when they were down getting Lot out, all of the people of the city wanted them. Remember, they're banging on the door, and they're telling Lot, hey, send them out. I, we want them. It had nothing to do with necessarily the sin that was going on in the city. They wanted those angels for power and authority and access. They knew who they were. It wasn't just uh, they wanted to go date these guys. <laughs> they wanted their access. They wanted authority because it's all linked to what happened on Mount Hermon in Genesis 6. So they, it's something much more sinister than that. And we'll, and we'll get into that in a couple of weeks when we dive into prophecy. But okay, here in Hebrews 13 verse 3. Remember them that are in, bo- in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Okay, we're all in one body here. If you're saved and you're in Jesus, you are in the same body as, as me and others that are saved here. So we must lift up one another. Uh, I'm gonna butcher this young man's name, but Onesiphorus, I think if I'm seeing that right, from the back of the room here. He did this for Paul in 2 Timothy 16, uh, chapter 1, 16 through 18. You can go chase those verses down. He exhorted Paul and lifted him up. 1 Corinthians 12, 23 through 26, look at these verses. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Now, it's amazing, my grandfather actually experienced this, which was one of the reasons uh, my dad, growing up, wanted absolutely nothing to do with the church. He wanted nothing to do with God, he wanted nothing to do with the Bible. 
my, my family, my grandfather, who grew up in Arkansas, was extremely poor, very poor, and grew up, he was one of, of many boys, I think he had seven or eight brothers, and his dad, my great-grandfather, took them all to church in Arkansas, um, in this small town where he grew up, and the people in that church kicked them out because of what they were wearing, and he wanted, and from that day forward, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with God. Zero. You couldn't talk him out of it. He then went on to serve in World War II, saw a lot of uh, horrible things in the Pacific campaign, fighting overseas, raised his uh, son and, and my aunt, my dad and my aunt, to have nothing to do with the Lord as a result. And here he was, someone that was wanting to become a part of the body, and yet the body was looking on him in this calmliness and someone that was of low stature and wanted nothing to do with them. And as a result, it rippled through generations of a family, all because of how a group of people treated him and his dad in the back of a church service. Now, it's incredible. And, and you and I, sometimes we miss the opportunity that when you see someone in need, it's amazing how often... Um, Christians don't run to that need. You know, here was a family that they had lots of needs. That church could have come around them, put their arms around them, lifted them up, poured into them, had fellowship with them, and could have changed the entire trajectory of my family. Honestly, it could have. Uh, but the Lord has worked a lot through it, so, you know, praise God for it. But those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, 1 Corinthians 12, 23, Upon these, we bestow more abundant honor. That's what we should be doing, bestowing more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's what you and I, that's how our behavior should be. We should be lifting up and exhorting every member of the body, no matter whether they see him of low esteem or high esteem. You know, we should be in a position that every single person that walks through these doors, through the doors of any church, frankly, feels welcomed, honored, uh, they're met with joy, a smile, because they're here to meet Jesus and to dig into his word. Okay, in verse four here, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, whoremongers and adulterers. You know, I love how polite God uh, uses English sometimes, whoremongers. Whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. <laughs> So we should not act in an adulterous way in our marriage covenant. We must leave the bed undefiled. That's what God's talking about here, leaving the bed undefiled. The Greek word for bed here is also used in Romans 13, verse 13. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. And that word chambering is the same Greek word. It has to do with adulterous behavior. That's, the, that's what the Greek word has to do with. 
You know, God set up the marriage covenant to be his most intimate form of a relationship. He established it. God's covenant is in marriage. That's why the world is against it. That's why Satan wants to tear it apart. If you're in this room and you're married, your marriage, Satan would love nothing more than to tear apart. It doesn't matter if you've been married a day or 18 years, as my wife and I, or 58 years. God wants to tear it apart all the same. It's a covenant. Anything that God established, Satan wants to tear apart. Anything. The land grant to Abraham, nope, Israel, you cannot have that land. We need to divvy it out. It's not for you. You see the entire world attack it. The marriage covenant, the entire world attacks it. Marriage is not between a man and a woman. You know, well, I'm sorry, but God made it. God wrote it. He said it's between a man and a woman, and it's not our covenant to mess with. And so we need to, every time we go through this in this nation, again, we are shaking the fist at God and saying that we know better for this covenant than you know. But the intimacy of the marriage, it's one not granted to angels. It's something they looked upon and lusted over, and it's partially responsible for their rebellion in Genesis 6. They, the angels are not given in marriage. We are, because we're made in the likeness of God. Angels are not. Okay, angels are not made. They're created. There's something totally different. And this is what God means in Matthew 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, you and I, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now, a lot of people read that and go, well, in the resurrection, after we get to heaven, that must mean that we're not married anymore to your spouse. And that's, um, again, Acts 17, 11 applies. That's not what it says. It says you're neither married nor given in marriage. It doesn't say you're no longer married. And so you just got to take that carefully. I don't know exactly if that's true or not. Um, I've asked the Lord a lot of times. I don't have a clear answer on it yet. I'm just sharing with you very openly, but this is something I've asked him about. When we die and we get to heaven, are you still married? Uh, you're not given in marriage any longer, but if you've honored his covenant on the earth, does that covenant continue for eternity? Uh, he, he wants no man to break it. So it's curious. Uh, I'll just kind of leave it at that. Food for thought, I guess, for the week. Deep thoughts for Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, very deep thoughts here. I'm sure somewhere someone's uh, talking about the Super Bowl at the pulpit right now, and, and I'm sitting here wondering if we stay married in heaven. Um, it's just, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get when you walk in, you know? But marriage is God's most intimate form of relationship, and that's why he modeled it that way. That's why he's modeled the church of being the body will be a bride of Christ, that, that model of marriage relationship with him. It's his most intimate form. And out of that relationship, he designed all life to be brought forth. I want you to think about that. He, he intended for no life to come forward of mankind except for out of that covenant. And so just that alone shows you the depth of the intimacy he has for marriage. And the enemy wants to destroy it. It's just that simple. And so for all of you young people in here, the attack on marriage as you get older is going to exponentially go up. It's already, there's an attack on it today that wasn't even there when I was a kid growing up in the 90s. The attack is going to be far worse as you grow up in the coming years. In verse five, let your conversation be without covetousness 
and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Okay, the Greek word for conversation here, it actually means your manner of life, character, deportment, or behavior. It's not as in, I'm sitting having a conversation with you. It's, it's much deeper than that. It's your behavior. It's how do you conduct your life. Okay, so with that in mind, read that again. Let your life and the behavior of it be without, and then he has a list. Covetousness and to be content with such things. There is no quicker way for any Christian in the United States of America to, to be led astray than materialism. Uh, the enemy, we live in a prosperous nation. We live in a prosperous state. We live in a state with very low cost of living. Uh, we live in a state that is abundant with high-paying jobs. And it's very easy for the enemy to get a foot in the door and to lead people astray with covetousness, to covet after things, to have materialism in their lives. Be content with such things as ye have, God says. You know, even the, the poorest people in our state still live pretty good compared to the rest of the world. Um, and I did some research years ago, and I don't know how outdated these stats are now, but at the time, I think this was about 10 years ago, at the time, if you made $70,000 a year and you had a checking account with any amount of money in it, up to a dollar, a dollar or above, you were considered one of the wealthiest people on planet Earth. I mean, just keep that in mind. That's, that should show you the state of the rest of the world that we don't really see here that much. Um, if you look statistically, there are somewhere around, I think, two to three billion people that live in utter impoverishment every day, not knowing where their next meal will come from. It's, it's nearly half the world's population. It's somewhere over three billion people. Okay, so our behavior, look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That Greek word for conversation or behavior is underlined, and it's translated as means in that verse. So let no man deceive you by any behavior or way of life, for that day shall not come. Now, what day? The day of the Lord. The day of the start of the tribulation. Until there be a falling away, a departure. Okay, in the, in the root of the word. A taking out, a snatching away by force. That day doesn't come until there's a departure. And the restraining Holy Spirit is removed from the earth. Okay, at that point the Antichrist is free to rise to power, to be revealed, to make a covenant with Israel and start the seven-year tribulation. So let no man deceive you by any behavior. There's a lot of deception about in the church about behavior and the end times. A lot of people will try to deceive you in terms of you need to stock up more. You need to have, make sure you have enough. You're gonna go into this time of trouble in Armageddon and you've gotta be prepared right? They're trying to deceive you by behavior. Hey, if you'll just donate to this ministry, we'll send you these uh, 18 food packs of non-perishable food that you keep in your attic for the next 20 years, whatever it is. I'm, I'm making that up kind of, but, <laughs> but it's out there. 
there's a, and we are not to be deceived, right? You and I are not to be deceived. Why? Because we have the word of God and we are to know and to be in it and reading it to know what do the end times look like? When you study it and you rightly divide it, you and I will not be here, the church. And praise God, Jesus promised to keep us from the very time of trouble, not preserve us through it. And that restraining Holy Spirit has to be removed. Then that man of sin, that's one of 33 titles for the Antichrist in the New Testament. The man, I'm sorry, 14 in the New, 33 in the Old. Uh, there's about 47 titles of the Antichrist in the Bible. The man of sin is one of them in, Revel- in Th- 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 8. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses. Now you can read the entire Old Testament and see this whole exchange between Moses and in Pharaoh's court and these astrologers and magicians were standing him and God never reveals their names until 2 Timothy 3.8. These are the two guys that withstood Moses. Janus and Jambres withstood Moses. They were in the court of Pharaoh. Remember, they could do some things that Moses could do, but not other things. Remember, they could cast their rod down and, and it would turn into a serpent and then Aaron's rod swallowed them whole. And then some things they couldn't do. Satan will deceive the church with all lying signs and wonders. Okay, in the Bible it talks about. If you are seeing signs and wonders, you need to ask yourself first, who gets the glory for that? If the glory is going to someone else other than Jesus, then it's not from God. It's from Satan. Secondly, you need to ask, what is this for? Is this somehow deceiving people? Uh, you see that a lot you know, in the Central America, South America region where uh, they get caught up a lot in statues that are crying or uh, they see different things, uh, um, apparitions of Mary or things like that. That's not from God. That is, a, that is a means and a tool from Satan to get people's affection turned away from God and looking to something else for answers. So, this line signs and wonders, they will abound in the end times also. So keep that in mind. We have to be on guard. So do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, rep- reprobate concerning the faith. So, and again, in 2 Timothy, you get the names of those, those people from Egypt. But our behavior and how we conduct our lives should be free of materialism, and that should be a witness to one another and to the world. You know, if you let materialism take root in your life, you will never be content, ever. There is, you will, you will bow down and worship one of the many gods today, and that is the God of more. It's the never-ending pursuit of more. You can never have enough. If materialism is in your life, it will manifest because your affection and things are looking elsewhere for fulfillment. And it's this kind of spiral that keeps going and it's never satisfying. You'll never be fulfilled. God will provide everything you need. Look at the end of this verse. You need to be content in your life. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He will provide it all. And when you truly understand the depth of that promise of provision, you will walk in total freedom in your life, complete freedom. It doesn't matter. I mean, he sent birds to bring meat to Elijah in the middle of the, of the desert and trees. He can do anything to provide for you. 
But the end of that verse, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 31.6 and 31.8. Let's look at 31.8 right here. And the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. Okay, that's in Deuteronomy 31.8. We're going to look at 31.6 here on this slide. But moving forward in Hebrews 13 here in verse 6. So that we may boldly say, Okay, so because he will never leave you nor forsake you, we then can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The Lord is my helper. Because he will never leave you nor forsake you, you and I can boldly declare, the Lord is my helper. He's your guardian. He's your source. He's your provision. He fights for you. He will go before you and clear a path for you and your family. He will guard behind you. Uh, if you if you sit down, one of the prayers Randy and I have, ha- have had over our household lately was what he what he did for the children of Israel in, in the wilderness. That our property, our land, would literally be covered with a pillar of fire, uh, because demonic activity and an attack from the enemy is ramping up everywhere. If you're not seeing it in your lives, praise God, but start praying that around your family right now. The, the enemy, the veil is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And it's, it's Christians, the remnant, Christian remnant everywhere all over the world, they're being attacked a lot right now by uh, demonic entities, fallen angels, the spiritual attack from, from Satan himself. Uh, he has an assignment on you and I. Uh, just, as, just as organized and in the war as we should be, Satan is even much more so. He is, he is the most cunning enemy you and I will ever face. And he wants to take you out. This is not a game. He does not want to just mess with you a little bit. He wants to end you because you walk with the Holy Spirit in the light of the world. So don't take that lightly. But God will never leave you nor forsake you so you should have no fear of what man can do to you. Now, an attack from the enemy is different than persecution. Uh, they kind of go the same, but you should expect to be persecuted. You, you should expect to be ridiculed for a living for Jesus. Look what God said, the Lord said in Matthew 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, that's a healthy fear that we, that we should all have. Uh, Jesus is the only one that is able to cast you out into hell. And he does it, actually. In, in fact, it's, it's a little bit of a twist on how people look at it. But Jesus doesn't actually send anyone to hell. They send themselves to hell for not accepting his retribution for them. So... A lot of times, people, people that are against God will use that as a question to try to trap you, right? Why would a loving God send someone to hell? He didn't. They refused, they refused the covering for their sin and retribution and to be born again. And so they're really sending themselves there. It's like, you, yeah, I know all of you have experienced this if you're parents, right? You can tell your kid a million times not to do something that's going to hurt them. And what do they do? They'll go somehow and do it. <laughs> and it's not your fault, Right? Do not stick that fork in the electrical socket. Do not do it. Do not do it, especially after it's been in water. Don't do that. And, and sure enough, 
the more they hear about it, the more they're going to go and just, you know, zap themselves. It's the same way, right? God's trying to raise a family. And so he does not want anyone to go to hell. But we should have a healthy reverence and fear of the one that can send us there. Okay, in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is he, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. So because he will not fail nor forsake us, we should be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them, of, of mankind. They can do nothing to you. Okay, you can boldly declare that the Lord is your helper in any situation. So anything you're facing, he's with you as a born-again believer. So do not fear any part of humanity. Persecution, being ridiculed, exiled, hated, mocked, even death itself. People, when you, you saw this in, in Afghanistan, if you saw any of the videos after we pulled out, I think that was last year, but the Taliban overran the nation, and the first thing they, they did was they, rallied, they rounded up people in big groups and villages, pulled out their phone. If they had the Bible on it, they shot them in the head. And you saw videos of, I saw some videos of people on their knees not denying Jesus with guns to their head. They knew what it cost them, and they should not fear those guys. They're going to be, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, but you and I should not fear any part of humanity. You know, there's people in the Middle East that do that daily. You know, so I think you and I can go, can go to work and not fear uh, being ridiculed or mocked, right, or, or exiled in some regard. Okay, moving on after this, this verse here. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Again, the, the word conversation, not conversation, but behavior. Okay, the opening word of this verse in the Greek, it means to hold in memory. So that word, remember, it means to hold in memory, keep in mind, or observe carefully, to be watching. God raises up people throughout the body of Christ, and some of those people fall away over time. You see this a lot in the church today. These, these ministers and people that have been raised up decades ago or 10 years ago or however long ago, and now all of a sudden they're saying, yeah, I think I had it wrong. Uh, marriage really isn't between a man and a woman. You know, I think I had it wrong. Abortion is okay. These, these are like mega churches all over the country that do this all the time. And the end of their behavior is not right. And we're going to look at that in a second. But remember them which have rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. So he's raised up people all through the body and you need to watch carefully and you need to be praying for those people in the body that are raised up to teach the word of God because it's rare. A lot of churches don't even open the Bible today. So you've got to observe carefully and, and pray for people that God raises up. Our mission is in New City and what it should be in every Bible-believing church is to raise up and equip disciples. You know, we want you to be tethered to God, not tethered to a pastor or a teacher. The teacher, the pastor, should be equipping you to study the word of God on your own and to be self-feeding, to be self-feeding people. There's an interesting study out of that, the church in California that kind of started the megachurch movement, Willow Creek, 
they did a study uh, years ago. It got so big, and, and they realized that they got so big, and they, were te- and they weren't teaching the word of God. They weren't equipping the saints. And what they realized is what they saw is the body started to deteriorate within their, their, uh, their church, and they did an independent study. And the study they found was that we turned to a seeker-friendly message that was not teaching the word of God, and as a result, the people left the church and just failed everywhere. They went out of the world, and they weren't equipped for it, and they, they went and they became a part of the world, and then they brought unsaved people to church to invite them because it was kind of a feel-good message, and as a result, it became this corrupt, rotting body over time. And their, their response to it at the end of the survey if you can go Google this too and look this up, the report they wrote on it. It's a self-report. They did this on their own. Their finding was we should have been a church that was feeding them the word of God and to teach people how to be self-feeders, to go out and to open the word of God and to study it on their own so that they can build up their faith and go out and make disciples. So that's the mission, right? The mission is to equip all of you with the word of God, not to equip you to be tethered to me or anyone else in this church, but be tethered to God. So the end of the behavior of those that teach the word should be to finish strong. That's, that's the goal, finishing strong. Okay, in verse eight here, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. How many of you have heard this quote, this verse in an in a environment where someone is trying to witness to someone? I'm sure all of you have heard this. But in what way is Jesus the same? Well, in the context of this these passages, we're talking about how he will not leave you nor forsake you. It's his character that is the same. Obviously, Jesus physically was very different three different times. So physically, he's not been the same forever. He stepped down from his throne in heaven and became a man in the flesh for all eternity. It's his character and commitment that's the same forever, yesterday, today, and forever. Physically, he became a man for all eternity, then he died, and then he changed again into a resurrected body, a resurrected body that could come in and out of rooms at the speed of light without going through the door, a resurrected body that could literally bend space-time itself and go from heaven to earth to talk to people and back to heaven. And so he hasn't been the same But that's exactly what Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." And so he changed, right? Jesus physically changed. So just keep that in mind. We just have to rightly divide the word of God here. His character has remained the same forever. Physically, he's gone through a couple different changes that are pretty radical. Okay, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Okay, this is Hebrews 13, verse 9. The doctrine covered all through Hebrews should be unifying. When you and I are staying and abiding in the word of God, 
It should be like a tongue and groove connection that, man, the body is just locked in. We are all together. We're all marching together. This is fantastic. We're unified under Christ. Uh, But unfortunately, that's not what we see today. There's a lot of different false doctrines, strange doctrines, false teachings creep into the church. They take root and people grab a hold of it because it tickles their ears, right? And that's what the Lord warned us about in the New Testament. Those that say things to just tickle the ears, that that you can have anything you want, um, you just have to give enough money here to the church. They make up these things that for some reason people buy into, and I have no idea why. It's just, it's because they're not rooted in the word of God. But look at Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. God is just so politically correct sometimes. I just love it. Because of the blindness of their heart. Okay, so far he's called these people vain, vain they're ignorant, and they're blind. Okay, he's, he's pretty boldly talking here. Verse 19, who being past feeling, having given themselves over unto lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. People will make up a lot of doctrines if it means it benefits them somehow. And, and or if they just don't want to stay rooted to God's word. And anytime you hear someone make up a doctrine that's named after someone or that they say they are in the, in the process of going through uh, one of the phrases you'll hear a lot today is, well, I'm deconstructing, like it's a verb. Like I'm, I'm taking God's word and I'm taking it apart piece by piece. And really what they're saying is, there are parts of God's word and his commandments that I don't like and I want the, them out of my life. I want to deconstruct them and get them out. That's what it means. So anytime you hear someone put a verb to it or it's named after someone, uh, named after Calvin, for example, that God didn't die for everyone, uh, Calvinism. You know, who, I don't know who takes five points out of the Bible and names them after themselves and says, this is the truth of God's word. Just like that alone should make you think, something's wrong with this. Uh, this can't be right. So just be aware of that because it happens more and more and more. And you and I, our key is to stay rooted in God's word. That's the key. Okay, in verse 9, Moving on here in verse 9. So there are three characteristics of a good teacher in Hebrews 13, verse 7. They proclaimed biblical truth. They, they are a man of faith. They have a spiritual life that is their priority and worthy of imitation. Okay, in verse 9, there's three characteristics of false teachers. They teach false, diverse doctrines. If they're teaching something that is not, that is not found in God's word, then it's a false, diverse doctrine. It's just that simple. They teach on the external rather than the internal spiritual matters. And that's what God means here by not with meats which have not profited them. There's a lot of, a lot of teachers out there that will try to teach you that if you do something on the external, it will satisfy what you need on the internal. Well, if you just work on this and if you just... If you consume this in your life and you want to go after this, that's false. 
They do not establish your heart with meat. That's what God's saying in verse 9, in Hebrews 13, verse 9. The third one is their teachings fail to produce effective spiritual growth bearing fruit. And again, back to that Willow Creek study, that's what that church found out in California about 20 years ago now. Okay, we have an altar, verse 10 here. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. So in the temple at Jerusalem, there was an altar for whole burnt offerings. It did not just include the altar, but also the meat upon the altar, which was to support the Levitical priesthood. At the time Hebrews was written, the temple was still standing, and the Levites who were serving in the temple obviously had not trusted in the final blood sacrifice of Jesus, okay? So they hadn't trusted in that. They were still serving in the temple, so God's using this as an example. There's only one sacrifice and one meat by which we must partake now, and that's Jesus himself. And yet these Levites and these Jews were partaking of a meat inside the temple still. Okay, look at this deeper. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Now remember, on the day of atonement in the Old Testament, Yom Kippur, the high priest, the the Levites, took the sacrifice outside of Jerusalem to burn it. It was the only one. Every other sacrifice was burned and, and there in the temple or in the court area of the temple. The Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was taken outside the camp. It's foreshadowing Jesus' crucifixion outside the camp. And so it was not burned on the altar like the other sacrifices. The body and the remains were taken outside the camp and burned entirely. That's in Leviticus 16, verse 27. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was the one day the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Remember, they would take this sacrifice, go outside the camp, burn it ritualistically, cover themselves, go back, and then they could go into the Holy of Holies, into the veil, behind the veil. There was only one day a year they could do that, and it was after they burned the sacrifice outside the camp. Okay, that sacrifice had to be consumed entirely. There was nothing left over. Today, however, the the point God is making here in these last two verses we're covering today, today, however, the believer can eat of Jesus' sacrifice, which took place outside the camp. Burning the Yom Kippur offering outside the gate portrayed the removal of sin itself. It was taking up the sacrifice of sin and carrying it outside the gate, then burning it there. And Jesus is our final Yom Kippur sacrifice. Finally, it is one that we can all partake in and have access to the Holy of Holies then. So today, because of what Jesus did outside the camp and the gate, we have the, most, the same privilege, actually a greater privilege, than the most privileged person in all of Israel. The high priest was the most privileged individual in the entire Old Testament because he's the only one that got to go in behind the veil to the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat for Jesus, literally the glory to come down, to commune with him. And you and I, because Jesus went outside the gate as the final sacrifice, 
have a greater privilege because we have access to it not one day a year, every single day repeatedly. You can go into the throne room of the universe anytime you want, and that's the beauty of it. It's something that you and I should not take for granted. So the Holy Spirit uses the word camp in verse 11, but gate in verse 12. He's using that intentionally because Jesus was taken both outside the camp of Judaism and outside the gate of Jerusalem. Both were true. He was leaving Judaism, going out of the the camp and out of the city, the gate, to be nailed to a cross as the final sacrifice. Okay, so those who stay in Judaism and do not accept the sacrifices of Jesus will not be saved and will not have access to the Holy of Holies. They need to leave that camp of Judaism. You've got to be a partaker of Christ's once and for all sacrifice is the key. Now, like I mentioned, there's a lot going on in the world right now. A lot going on. Uh, What we want to do is take heed of these warnings. Uh, There's a lot of false doctrines out there, a lot of a lot of things that, that you can get caught up in, a lot of things that don't point you to Christ. The best way to guard against all of that is just to stay in the Word of God. Just stay in the Bible. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to look in other things and do some, some studies in them or research them, but you need to be in the Word of God so you know when some teacher says something and they're off, you pick it up right away. That you don't let it seep in. And we've got to heed these warnings. And the best way to do that is to guard ourselves in the word of God. So don't drift. Don't let your heart harden. Uh, don't fail to mature. Don't then commit, commit willful sin. And then don't refuse God. It's, it sounds so simple, but yet for some reason it's always so hard to do. But we can't forsake our inheritance that's laid up for us. Remember these five crowns in the Bible. It's not an all-inclusive list. But these are five crowns in the word of God that are tied to specific behaviors as Christians. The crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of perishable, and the crown of rejoicing. We've got to press on to be an overcomer. We have a reward waiting for us to eat of the tree of life, not hurt of the second death, to have hidden manna, the white stone, and a new name that Jesus has for us, power over the nations, white raiment, pillar and a new name in his temple, to sit with Christ on his throne and to inherit all things. Those are rewards for us as if we'll press on to be an overcomer. So how are you an overcomer? You remain loyal to God. Don't lose your first love. You overcome trials and tribulations. You're spiritually zealous for God and his word. You do not deny Jesus. You do not defile your garments and you keep the word of his patience from Revelation all those in Revelation 2 and 3. Okay, and we've got to be watchful. Um, if you have, like I mentioned, if you, unless you're just an ostrich with your head buried in the sand, there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot going on right now uh, that we are, we are all of a sudden shooting objects out of the sky that are hovering over North America. One of them, the guy in the Pentagon, got in front of a podium and said, yeah, this thing was silverish gray, cylindrical, and it was floating over the Pacific Ocean, but it was over Alaska, and we have no idea what it was. It, it wasn't a balloon. They would have said it was a balloon because they were so quick to tell everyone, don't worry, it's just a balloon. 
don't worry, it's just a balloon hovering over eight of our missile silos and over three of our Air Force bases, and we're going to let it continue because we don't know what this thing's doing. Uh, they are so quick to tell you and I to try to calm us down, right, that it's just a balloon. But that since then, they've shot two things out of the, out of the air that are, they won't tell us what it is. And, but the guy from the Pentagon described it as something that has been all over Fox News, all over uh, Tucker Carlson for the last six years. If you haven't been watching these UAPs that are coming in and out of our dimensionality. And when you, when you pay attention to it closely, uh, we will get into some of this in the prophecy updates. But these things that are coming in and out of, out of our dimensions they're able to do things and traverse physics that no, no man could survive. They, they make right angle turns at Mach 3, and if, if you were just a human in that craft doing that, you couldn't do it. You, your body would literally just rip in two because of the gravitational forces that go through that. And so what are these? You know, what, what is going on up there? The, Tucker Carlson's been talking about it almost monthly for about six years. And when you study it closely, uh, spoiler alert, it's demonic. Uh, these are not benevolent creatures and beings. These are fallen angels, demons. They manifest in our world to deceive us today, just like they have all over the Bible. It's just the same. It's, just a, it's the same tactic that they want to do, which is to deceive, but it's just a different method today than it was then. Now, if you're watching closely too, like I mentioned, there's an attack on there's an attack on Jesus, there's an attack on marriage, there's an attack on biology, you know, frankly, that there's not just two genders. The Bible says God made male and female. And there was a student just this week in high school in Toronto, that's the, the headline on the left, on your left there. He was arrested for in class stating that there is only two genders, male and female. Arrested. This kid was arrested. It wasn't like the teacher said, well, you can't say that here. That's kind of offensive to whomever in the classroom. They arrested him and took him to jail. That's how absolutely insane this world is getting. And if you hear, this, this is the funny part. If you hear the Supreme Court justice, remember when someone said, asked her, uh, can you define a woman? And remember what she said? She said, I'm not a biologist. So they admit that it's biology, right? If she, was, if she was on script, she would have said, well, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know who people identify as. She said it and she meant it. I'm not a biologist because they all know biology defines if you're a male or a female. It's just that simple. You have an X or a Y chromosome and, and it's pretty easy to see. And so, but that's how crazy the world is getting. I mean, even... We went to a Christian clinic right here in Oklahoma City last week for one of our kids, and the form, the form on the Christian clinic listed more than male and female to sign up for. And it, I just kind of sat there and was like, what is happening? This is so weird. It is the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's, it's, and the, the picture on your right, you probably all saw this on social media and things, but this guy was wearing a t-shirt in the Mall of America. This was in the United States, in Minnesota, in the Midwest, in the Mall of America. His t-shirt said, Jesus. The front says, Jesus saves. The back said, Jesus is the only way. If you've ever seen that 
that tat- people have it tattooed on them a lot, the coexist tattoo with all the different religious symbols, meaning there's really more than one way to God. There's not, there's one way, and Jesus is the way. He was wearing this shirt in the mall, and he was, the people you're seeing are the security people, officers at the mall. They're asking him, if you watch the whole video, they're asking him to take it off because he's offending the patrons in the mall to take off a t-shirt. The guy was just shopping and he had on this t-shirt. He wasn't, you know, standing out, holding, handing out tracks or witnessing or anything. He just was walking around. And this was right here in the United States of America, in the Midwest, in Minnesota. It's just, things are getting weird. So what I, what I want to do when we start prophecy two weeks from today is to kind of go, go through some modern events like things like this, but also just to look at what does the Bible say about this? Because it's, it's all over. And if you are here, if you're watching this and you found us and you're not born again, it's really simple. You've got to get saved because there's a lot of weird things going on in the world. And Jesus is just, he is so eager to bring us home. So if you're not saved, it's really simple. Romans 10, 9 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. Jesus is the only way, the only way to heaven, the only way to God, the only way to have a relationship with God, and you have to get on your knees and confess that he is God. Once you do that, you can be saved forever. Okay, with that, we'll close Hebrews 13 next week. There's our email address. If you need anything at all, just reach out. We love to help. Uh, If you ever want to get signed up for the notes, I email those out every week. Just drop an email there if you want the electronic copies, and we'll make sure you get that. But we love hearing from people. Hear from people from all over the world every couple of weeks. It's pretty neat just to hear the number of people that find us somehow online and reach out to us. So if you're one of those people, thank you. We love you guys, and we're praying for the body all over the world. Lord, we come before you, and we just thank you for all that you've given us. God, we pray that you would bless your word. Let it go forth, not in vain. Your word says that it will not return void. And as it goes out, God, we pray that you would personally speak to every single person that hears these messages, that studies your word. Do not let their efforts go in vain. Let them hear from you in a bold way. And Lord, with everything that's going on in the world right now, we pray that, Lord, you would stretch your tent pegs over our nation. God, we pray that we would abide under the shadow of the Almighty as this nation. That, Lord, you would rain down over our land with a pillar of fire from heaven. That you would guard our borders. That you would guard our people. God, you said that you would not destroy a land if there were just 10 righteous. God, there are 10 righteous right here that are the remnant, that are chasing after you. And there's more all over this nation, God. And we come before you and we do confess that, God, our nation has been in a place of rebellion against you for a long time. And Lord, just like Daniel coming before you and praying on behalf of himself and his people, Lord, I come before you and I I pray forgiveness. And I pray that your blood would cover this land, that you would stretch out your authority over us and let us abide under your shadow in the wings of the Almighty. 
and let this land be a place of righteousness and a place of refuge for your people. Lord, let this be and maintain its place as a place of light to the world until you call us home. Do not let this nation fall, God, before you call us out. We pray that this land stay strong. We pray that, God, your word would cover this land from sea to sea and from north to south, and that, God, your presence would abide with us and lead us in all truth. God, we love you, and we look to you as we see all of these things happening. You told us in Luke 21 to look up when lawlessness abounds, when you see things coming upon the earth from the heavens. God, you told us to look up for our redemption draws nigh, and we are remaining watchful that that day does not overtake us as a thief, but we are excited at the seasons ahead, Lord, and we love you, and we thank you for this time together, God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.